You know, how we, uh, how we view our parents, how we view our, our fathers, um, really impacts how we respond to them. Like, I don't, I don't know if you grew up and you had, like, a great father. I don't know if your father was always there for you or if your father was absent, or your father was a good father, or your father was a bad father. I, I, I'm not sure uh, what your context is and, and what your past is, but, but I know how we perceive our fathers impacts how we respond. If our fathers were good fathers, uh, we, we think highly of them. If our fathers were bad fathers, maybe we uh, work really, really hard to not be like them. And, uh, but it's, it's important um, to understand how we, how we view and, and how that impacts us. And, you know, growing up, my, my father was, was a man that ran a very tight ship. He was one that, you know, you, you, you stayed in line, you were good. But as soon as you stepped outside the lines, uh, there was correction. And many times that correction came by the wielding of a big belt. I don't know what it was, but my dad had this belt that he wore all the time. It was like this thick leather, and it was like this wide, and it was just crazy, and it would hurt. And I ran into my father's belt many, many times because I needed to be, be corrected. So my father was a man that was to be feared. He was one, in, in some ways, that was a man of, of discipline. And one Father's Day, I think it was, I was seven or eight, one Father's Day, my, my dad got a new sod for our backyard. That was his gift. Uh, my mom and had bought him sod, and so along with the new sod came a bunch of new rakes, and so uh, we spent the weekend, Father's Day weekend, uh, with new rakes and new sod, breaking up the dirt and uh, laying this new sod, and I can remember distinctly, there was one afternoon, I think it was Saturday afternoon, we're raking and laying sod, and my, my mom and my dad, they went inside to get a, a, uh, a cool drink. And I stayed outside, and so there I was. I was like, oh, I'm going to take care of this while mom and dad are away. I'm going to finish laying all the sod. And so me being a seven- or eight-year-old boy, I, I pick up the rake. It's a brand-new, shiny rake. I'm like, all right, I'm going to break up this dirt. And so I start breaking it up with the rake, and then all of a sudden I'm like, well, I can do better than that. So you know how you, you yield a, a sledgehammer? You know how you pick it up and you, like, that's what I was doing with the rake. I'm, I'm beating the ground. I'm like, I'm going to make this the nicest dirt possible, and this, the grass is going to take hold, and it's going to be beautiful. So there I am, pounding away at the dirt with all my might. And with one stroke, I remember I took it up, and I went down, and I hit into the ground as hard as I possibly could. I think my feet even came off the ground as I'm hitting this thing into the ground. And what happened when I did it was such force and such might that the head of the rake got stuck in the dirt. And so there I was. I'm like, oh my goodness, now the rake is stuck in the dirt. And so I'm yanking on it, I'm pulling on it, and I'm giving it all my might. And guess what happened? The handle came loose of the head. And there I am with the stick in my hand and the head in the ground. And I'm like, oh no, what did I do? I just ruined the rake. So I'm absolutely freaking out in my mind. I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to fix this? I'm trying to, with all of my might, trying to figure out how I can get it back in there. And then I've got to get the rake head out of the ground. And finally, I was so overwhelmed with fear of what was going to happen to me, that I froze. I'm like, I am going to die. Surely this will be my last day. I broke the new rake. It's in the ground. What am I going to do? So I did what any seven or eight-year-old boy would do. I took a piece of sod. I laid it over the broken rake, and I ran into my bedroom. And I can remember running downstairs into my bedroom with my pillow over my head just weeping because I knew I'd messed up. I broke the new rake. I blew it. Imagine my surprise a few minutes later when my parents walked outside. 
where once stood a, a rake that was whole now is in pieces underneath a piece of sod. Yeah, I must imagine in their mind, well, they're like, what? how did this happen? Like, what transpired so that the rake, like, I see this a lot of times when walking through my house. I'm, I see things now, and I'm like, how did that, that's not the way I left it. Anyway, so I, I must imagine in their mind, they're trying to now do the investigation of how did the rake get broken, where's the responsible party, and all this other stuff. And so they begin their investigative process, and my dad comes into the house, I can hear him walking down the steps. And he's like, Jeff, and I'm not saying anything. He's like, Jeff, where are you? I'm not saying anything. Finally, he says, Jeffrey, where are you? And right there, he's right outside of my door, and he stops, and he can hear my weeping. And he walks into the room, and as he gets closer, I can feel, like, the hair on my back, whatever hair on my back at the time was. (laughs) I feel it just raising, and I remember just wishing I could totally disappear. My dad is going to do great damage. I just imagine in my mind as he's walking closer to my bed that the belt is already pulled out and it's doing this kind of thing as he's coming towards me. And he taps me on the shoulder and I roll over and I look up at him and he can see the tears in my eyes. He's like, Jeff, what did you do? I'm like, Dad, I'm so sorry I broke the rake. I was just playing. I was trying. I just wanted to fix it. I just wanted to make everything nice for you. I'm so sorry I broke the rake. I'm so sorry I broke the rake. I'm so sorry I broke the rake. And my dad looked at me in the eyes and he leaned down and he embraced me. And he says, Jeff, we can get another rake. In that moment, I saw a different side of my dad. Now, he, he had been this way before, but it was rare. You, I knew that in that moment, with my dad, there was direct, if there were, you sinned, there were consequences. I knew that's how my dad responded. That's the way he always was. He was caring and he's loving. And he wanted us to know that there are consequences for our actions. I got that. But on this day, I saw my dad in a different way. The mercy and grace that flowed from my father on that day was overwhelming for me. I knew I deserved to be punished, and yet I didn't get it. Instead, I got an embrace from my father. That is an amazing thing. On that day, I learned that mercy and grace are characteristics of loving fathers. But today, as we come to God's word and we conclude our series in the the book of Exodus, we are going to see that mercy and grace are of the divine nature of our Heavenly Father, even in more ways. So if you would, take your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus Exodus chapter 34. I want to recap kind of where we've been. So if you haven't been with us on this journey, we'll get you up to speed in about 30 seconds. What's taking place is is God has has come to the people of Israel and he has made a covenant with them. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, we see this is the covenant he says. He says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What an amazing opportunity God has given the Israelite nation. He's given them the opportunity to be so close to him, to be his very own, to be in a tighter relationship with him, the God of the universe, more than any other person or any other nation in the world. 
But we saw last week that almost as soon as this covenant with Israel is confirmed, Israel becomes restless and they exchange the glory of the invisible God for their image of their own glory through the worship of a golden cow. See, this uh, rebellion and this immediate breaking of, of the covenant causes there to be distance between God's people and God. And immediately in, the mom- in this moment, Moses intercedes on behalf of God's people before God. And he asks them, Moses goes to God and says, please God, we know that, that we, have, we have fallen and we have totally destroyed the covenant. But would you please not remove your presence from us? And this morning, we're going to see the overwhelming grace and mercy of God. I believe that the side of God that we're going to see today is a side that if we can learn to understand and embrace, we can live as followers of Christ in amazing amounts of freedom. But I also believe that if we can come and we can begin to communicate this message of God, to our neighbors and to our loved ones and to our coworkers, this is what they need to experience of God the most. Because how we view God and how we perceive God changes how we respond to Him. And if we can see God as a God of mercy and grace, why would we not want to run to Him? But if our vision of God or our image of God or our perception of God is that he's a hard man, that he's a God, that a God of justice, and that he's a God of punishment, and if he's a God of the Old Testament, that if you touch this when you don't touch it, and you surely will die. If that's how we see God, if that's our only picture of how we see God, the God of the universe, who would want to be close to that? So I believe this message is appropriate for us today. I think it's something that we can learn, but it's something also we can understand and we can live in, but then we can also help share with others. The first thing I want us to see this morning as we come uh, to chapter 34, beginning in verse 1, I want us to see that God is willing and able to restore broken promises. God is able and willing to restore broken promises. Look with me in verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one see be seen throughout all the mountains. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. So what we see here is God's willingness and his ability to restore broken promises. We know that where we left off last week is the covenant was completely broken. The Israelite nation had violated the the demands of the covenant, but not only that, the tablet themselves, the, the law papers, the papers that showed this covenant were also destroyed. There were two copies that were absolutely broken when Moses came down and he shattered them. You know, the reason there were two copies, I was thinking about this this week, is is growing up when I viewed the Ten Commandments, I thought that in the two commandments on the first five were on one tablet and then the second were on another tablet. Well, that's not the case. 
The case is that there were, there were two copies of the same thing. So the Ten Commandments were on one set was on one tablet and one set was on the other tablet. And the reason for that was one was God's copy and one was the copy of the people. And when Moses came down from the mountain and saw God's people in absolute rebellion worshiping the golden cow, Moses took the tablets and he broke them and smashed them on the ground. In much the same way, it's like taking the, a marriage license and ripping it up and saying it's null and void, it's no longer useful. And yet, we see here God coming close to Moses. In the midst of this broken relationship, in this midst of this rebellion, God comes close to Moses. In essence, by coming close to Moses, he's actually also coming close to his own people, those that had rebelled. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to renew the covenant again. It's amazing to me what he does here is sometimes when we have like laws in, the, in, in, in our society, what happens is we have established laws and then when one party breaks it, we come back and we say, okay, well, since that contract's been broken, we need to write a new contract. And what happens then is when you write the new contract, usually you add additional stipulations to cover what was broken before, right? You understand what I'm saying? Well, what we see here is God's not doing that. God knows that his people are rebellious. It's, it's part of who they are, and they have a tendency, and they're bent towards rebellion. And instead of saying, I'm going to come to you and give you a covenant, but this time I'm going to add further stipulations to it. Instead, he says, I'm going to, give, I'm going to rewrite it again. The same things. All oh, the mercy and grace of God shows up in a very new and exciting way. He's giving his people a fresh start and a new beginning. He's not changing the original or the guidelines of the original covenant, but he's sticking to it. And this is why I love this too, because he says, Moses, all I need you to do is to cut the stones, bring it to me, and I will write it out. Can you imagine having that power? If you're in a relationship with someone else and they break a covenant with you and you have the power to rewrite the contract, that's a power. Well, God has that power, and he doesn't abuse it. Instead, he lays out the same promises over and over and over again. So I want us to see God is, God is able and God is willing to restore broken promises. The second thing I want us to see is because of God's name, it allows him to, to forgive. Because of his name, it allows him to forgive. Look with me in verses 5 through 7. Then the Lord, as Moses goes up, the Lord descends in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before me and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I want us to see God's name allows for forgiveness. God comes before Moses, and in this way, he, he calls out his own name. He wants to remind Moses who he is, and he emphatically calls out. He says, my name is Yahweh. My name is Yahweh. Remember that my name is Yahweh, that I am God. I am the God who is. I am the God who is free. I am the God that is almighty. I am the God who is merciful. I am the God who is complete in existence and complete in sovereignty. 
I am that God who can do as he chooses. God can extend mercy to whom he chooses. God has that right because he is the originator. He is the creator of all things. He's reminding Moses of who he is by his name. By his very name, he is God. That's a good thing. We come to this passage, and I, I think that there are two challenges that this passage also brings to our mind. And we see them. Like, it's, it's easy to, I'd love to gloss over them, because I'd love to get to just like verses 6 and 7, the good stuff. But there are parts in here that are perplexing, and I think we, I'm going to kind of address those before we jump back into looking at the character of God. I, I see there are two questions here that, that are brought up. One question that we need to uh, respond to and answer to is, is, who is it that God does and doesn't forgive? That's in, in verse 7. So who is it that God does and doesn't forgive? And the second question is, what is this whole idea between father's sins and children's sins? What, what is the relationship there for, between if a father sins and how it gets carried on down? What's, what, how are those at play at all these things? And I want to take just a few moments to address those, and then we'll jump back looking at the character of God. So first, let's look at who God does and doesn't forgive. In verse 7, the second part of verse 7, God declares that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but then it also says, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Now that is a, seems to me like a contradiction. Like if you just have a cursory reading of that, you're saying, wait, 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 wait a minute. Like how? How does this play out? How does that work? Some are guilty, some are not guilty. How how does this work? So this is the problem. How can he forgive the guilty and yet not clear the guilty? Right? That's a good question. How can he clear the guilty and yet not clear the guilty? Or who are the guilty that he forgives and who are the guilty that he refuses to forgive? So I think a helpful way of answering this is to see how other Old Testament writers use this passage. If you come to Exodus chapter 36 and into verse 7, you can see that this passage or this understanding of, of the nature of God is either directly quoted or indirectly mentioned or pieces of it are mentioned over 22 times in Scripture. So I want to take just two of those and and see if they help us out. So we're going to look at Joel, and we're going to look at Jonah for examples. First of all, we can look at how Joel uses this passage. In Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, God says to the rebellious people, he says this, Yet even now return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. And Joel goes on to encourage God's people. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and repents of evil. So in other words, Joel is coming to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. He's using it as a way of encouraging the people by saying, if you will return to the Lord, he will turn away from the evil he was about to bring on you. So the assumption is that the people whom the Lord will not forgive are the unrepentant people who will not return to God with all their hearts. I think that's the way that Joel understood Exodus chapter 34, 5 through 7. Forgiveness is for the repentant, and the refusal of forgiveness is for the unrepentant. Let me give you another example. Jonah uses this, a similar passage too. 
he, he sees things in a very similar way. After Jonah preaches to the Ninevites and they repent, and God spares them, Jonah is angry with God. He's angry with God because God was merciful. And in Jonah chapter 3, verses 10 through 4, 2, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil ways, God repented of the evil, which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray thee, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and repentest of evil. Again, we see Jonah quoting Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, to explain why God had turned his wrath away from a sinful people. He turned his wrath away because they had repented of the evil ways. This is God's nature. It's his name. But we also see here there's, there's agreement between both Jonah and Joel that whether God forgives the Ninevites or not depends on whether or not the Ninevites repent and turn of their evil ways. So what we clearly see is God forgives guilty people who are repentant. Now we go back to Exodus chapter 34 as we are here at Mount Sinai. And we see God responding. He says, on one hand, the God says, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins. And on the other hand, he says, he will not clear the guilty. Yet we know all sinners are guilty. So which ones are the ones that he forgives? And which guilty ones will he not forgive? The answer is found when we are reminded of what Joel and Jonah said. He will forgive the guilty who turn from their sin and turn to God with their whole heart. It's the guilty who spurn this offer of mercy that he will not clear. So I think that answers the first question. The second question is, well, what is the whole deal with the, the father's sins and the children's sin in the second part of verse 7? As it says here, it says that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So that's, he makes that statement. And then if we turn over to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, there's a seemingly contradictory statement. This is this in, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So the question to be, should be, how, how is it that both of these verses are not contradictory? How is it that Exodus is able to say that the, the sins of the father we passed on down generation to generation? And how is it Ezekiel says, no, that's not the case? I think we can, we can learn a lot by, by t- keeping in context both what Ezekiel is trying to, to teach and both what Exodus is trying to teach. I think the most crucial thing is to help us see that in view of Ezekiel, he's referring to sons that do not choose to, fo- that choose to not follow in the sinful footsteps of their father. But Exodus has in view children who continue to follow in the same sinful steps as their parents. 
Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 19 says this, When the Son has done what is lawful and right, and He has been careful to observe all my statutes, He shall surely live. In, in, in other words, Ezekiel is saying, when, when a son chooses to step outside of the path that his father has shown them, the example the father has lived before him, when, when the son chooses to go outside of that and live differently by following the commands and the ways of the Lord, he will, not, he will surely not die. He will surely not carry the same challenges of the father. And I think Exodus has, has in view this. Because we see both in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, and in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, the, the words are almost repeated exactly, where he says, that God visits the iniquity of the father upon the children to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me. In, in other words, what, what Exodus is, is showing us is that the children share in their father's punishment because they share in their father's sins. They continue in the path that was shown them from their fathers before. So Ezekiel shows that if a child turns from the sinful ways of his fathers and obey, God will not punish the sins of his father. And Exodus teaches that any child that goes on sinning like his father will share in his father's punishment. This is a very sobering text for us as parents. I mean, if you, you think about the, I mean, there's grace and mercy of God clearly in this passage. But we also see the lives that we live before our children are important. If we model before them, not a, not a life of perfection, but a life of following Christ. And when, when we make mistakes, if, if we model a repentant, returning heart back to God, if we model before them asking for forgiveness and seeking restoration when we mess up, that's carried on. But if we continue and live before them a life that is unrepentant, where we shake our fist at God and we say, God, I will not bow before you. God, I will not bend my knee before you. If our lives are full of all kinds of rebellion then that's the pattern that we're showing our children. And our children can walk in that same way. Sin is like a contagious disease. My children don't suffer because I have it. They catch it from me. And they suffer because they have it. Now that we understand these challenges, let's... Get to the good stuff, the, the stuff that, that I, I think is so beautiful. I want us to look at God's nature uh, that is full of grace and mercy. Look with me in verse 5 again. No, let me look in verse 6. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin." If I, if I wanted to communicate to my girls um, part of who I am, if I, if I want to communicate with them um, how much I love them, I might, I might say something like, girls, I love you this much, right? I give them an example of saying, I love you this much. And they said, well, how much is that, daddy? I'm like, I love you this much. I love you so much 
that I love you this much. And they're like, but daddy, I love you more. And you're like, no, I love you this much then, right? And then you play the game with your kids and you, you want to continue to, I, I just love you this much. And then finally you say, you win because you're the dad and you're wiser than this. And they say, well, daddy, how much do you love me? And you say, I love you this much. And they're like, well, what's that, daddy? And I'm like, I love you this much. And what that means is my love goes all the way around the world, comes back to the other hand, right? You can't love anyone more than that, right? Isn't that kind of cool? You can use that. You can, how much you love? I love you this much. But see, what we see here is, is God is doing a very similar thing to us and to his people on this day. But he does it in a different way. He doesn't just say, I love you this much. He says, I love you this much, compounded with this much, compounded with this much, compounded with this much, compounded with this much. We're going to see that. He gives us five statements, five aspects of his love to communicate how much he loves and this passage alone should cause us to sit before our Heavenly Father and just marvel. Because He loves us this much. Let's look at how much He loves us. He gives us five expressions. He says, I'm a God that's merciful and gracious. I'm a God that is slow to anger. I'm a God that is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. I'm a God that forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's big. He gives us mercy and grace. He realizes that as God, we are going to offend him. As his people, we are going to continue to break promises with him. We can say, God, today I'm going to live for you. And by lunchtime, we've broken that promise 18 times. He knows that. And yet, he is a God that is merciful, which means that he does not give us what we deserve. When we break the rake, he doesn't always come with the rod. He doesn't always give us what we deserve, but he's also gracious in that he gives us more than we deserve. Instead, when we break the rake, he doesn't bring us the rod. Instead, he brings us himself and says, I want to hug you. I want to hold you. Our God is merciful and he's gracious. We see that he is also slow to anger. Oh, this is so contradictory to the world we live in today. We live in a world where we want to have such a quick response. I mean, you can, you can post something on Facebook, and within nanoseconds, you can have, if, especially if it's controversial, if you, you post your opinion on Facebook, within nanoseconds, people will respond. We're so quick to want to respond, to have our voice be heard. And we can quickly go from anger to rage where we immediately are people that want to cry out and we want to demand that justice is given. We see that God is exactly the opposite of that. God is slow to anger. God has an amazing capacity for our rebellion. He has an amazing capacity to hold back his wrath against us. He does promise that it's coming. But he has an amazing opportunity and ability to hold that back, to give us opportunities to turn back to him. Oh, he's slow to anger. He's not looking at your life saying, I'm angry at you. He's looking at your life saying, you still have time to turn. You still have time to repent. He's slow to anger. 
He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I, when I hear this, I, I envision in my, a, a view of an inexhaustible spring of love and faithfulness. Like I think to myself, there are times in which I sin, and at some point that's going to run dry. At some point, God is going to be fed up with my rebellion. At some point, he's going to say, okay, you're cut off. You're, you're cut off. But he says, it, it, his, by his nature, who he is, he's abounding in steadfast love. That means it's like a spring that will never, ever, ever, never, ever run dry. You can't out your way beyond the grace of God. It's an inexhaustible spring. It's consistent and it's constant and it never runs out. But we also see that he keeps his steadfast love for thousands. What, what this literally means is, is, is God is faithful to share his love from generations to generations. So not only can you experience the depths, like you can't exhaust the grace of God. The grace of God extends not only in the depths of you, but also through the span of all. Like it is, it is deep enough and it's wide enough for everyone. God's grace is enough. And he also comes to the place where he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. If we had more time, I'd love to unpack each one of these words. But let me just share with you what he's basically saying is, is any sin, all sin, is a rebellion against God. Okay? So he has the ability, whatever type of sin it is, he can forgive it. But there are some times where there's sin, where we do it, where, we pre, where it's premeditated. Like we sit around and we think to ourselves, today I'm going to violate God's commands by doing this, this, and this. We plan out our sin. He says, I'm even big enough to forgive that. Or sometimes we, we willfully cross the line. Maybe it's not premeditated, but we know where the line is, and we, where he says, do not cross the line, and we willfully do this. And on the other side, we're standing in defiance against God, and he says, I'm big enough to forgive you of that. When you willfully do it, when you premeditatively do it, when you do all these things, I am big enough to forgive you of it. That is an amazing God. But this grace of God has an expiration. Our only time to experience and to live in this grace is while we have breath in our lungs. Once the breath is gone, the opportunity is gone. How we view God changes how we respond. We see here how Moses responds to this grace and mercy of God. Look at me in verses 8 and 9. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a sick-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. That is the right response to this God. Falling before him. Bowing before him completely exposing ourselves to him, saying, God, I am completely undone before you. Make me as your inheritance. So this morning, as we just come to a time of close, let us learn, if we, if we have or find ourselves in the disposition of when we look at our lives and we see the sin and rebellion, our first inclination is to run away from God. 
Like we break the rake and we, run out of one, we want to try to hide it and then we want to run away. If that's your first inclination, if that's the disposition of your life that's been for a while, I want to encourage you, I want to implore you, stop. Stop running. Stop running away from God. Instead, stop just where you are and turn to God. And what he's going to do is he's going to turn to you and say, as you repent and as you turn, he's going to come running. He's going to grab you up, not literally, but in a way that he does, he's going to show you that he's a loving God. There's a bounding and steadfast love and forgiveness. And maybe your disposition to God is when you look at your rebellion and you look at your mistakes, you try to hide. Like, like you want to hide your rebellion. Like you are in the process of wanting to, to build your life up on the outside so that you look like you're a great follower of Christ. But deep down inside, you want to hide it so far away, you don't want it to come to light at all. If that's you, I want to encourage you to just expose it. Like, quit hiding. He already sees it. He already knows. And his grace and mercy are right there. Maybe, maybe your prayer today is, as, as a parent is you look at the description of the character of God and you look at the description of your own character in your own life and you say to yourself, that's not me. I'm not a, a parent that parents mercy, mercifully or mercifully or graciously. Maybe I'm not a parent who is slow to anger. Maybe, maybe I'm not a parent that's abounding. Maybe, maybe I have bounds that I set before my children and I say, you live in this area and you have my love and acceptance. But you go outside of that and you no longer have my love and acceptance. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's you. If, if that's you, if any of those resonate in your heart today, then I want to encourage you, don't beat yourself over the head about it, but come to God and say, God, I want to be more like you. Help me to be more like you. Help me to experience this in my own life so that I know that it is to be true. And then help me to be that as I model that and before, as I live that before my children. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a few moments and a closing song. And the, the, the words of this song, I want the, the words of this song to just wash over us, to be reminded of who God is, that he is a good father, that he is a loving father and that he cares for you. Allow the words of the song to wash over us. And if there's some business you need to take before, take care of between you and God, if there's forgiveness that you need to ask for, if there's a time in which your heart needs to repent, then I want to encourage you to use that time as this. But let's pray. Father, we thank you that your words are good and that your words are true. And we thank you that you are a merciful, gracious God that cares for us. And Father, that even more so than Moses had, we have Jesus. That he has already become our mediator. He is the one who has bridged the gap between us and God. And that it's through his sacrifice, through his shed blood, that our sins can be forgiven. So Father, today... May our faith be found in Christ. And may you help us to live more like you through the power of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.